Welcome back to Trending in Education. Dan Strafford, Michael Palmer, Brandon Jones with you yet again. But today we have our second guest here on Trending in Education. We'll talk to Brewer Saxberg momentarily. But first, Brandon, how are you doing this morning? I'm great. I'm excited. Uh, we've, we've, uh, we've grown our merry band by one again. Uh, and that's always that's always fun. So I'm, I'm doing well. I'm looking forward to today's show. And Mike, yourself? Uh, yeah, we just uh, we want to get into it. We were getting into it a little bit with Broer before, and uh, while we have him here, I think we want to uh, to take advantage of the fact that we have uh, we have a great addition to our our crew. And so, Brandon, uh, let's let's kick this conversation back off, please. I, well, we should find out who our, who the addition to our crew is. So, uh, Broer Saxberg is the chief learning officer for Kaplan Inc. Um, uh, Broer, uh, just uh, you tell uh, tell us a little bit about about you and uh, sure. who you are, what you've done, and and what are you doing here, Broer? <laughs> Well, you locked the door. I can't get out. That's true. That's um, so, uh, yeah, I, I started life actually as a kind of a cognitive science research guy. I'm an MD-PhD. I used to do human and machine vision research at MIT's Artificial Intelligence Lab uh, way back in the uh, 80s, um, before fire, before the iPhone, as my daughter <laughs> likes to say. And then uh, from there, I went to McKinsey for a few years and managed a consulting firm to learn how to put together resources and capital and ideas and go someplace with it. In the mid-90s, I jumped into the multimedia revolution in education, CD-ROMs. Some mm. of you may remember those. Cutting edge. Silver discs, yeah. I tell you, back in the day. Right. And, uh, and, spent, uh, and, and from then forward, I've been in a series of assignments that really were at the intersection of technology, cognitive science, curriculum, assessment, but all at scale. How do you do this out in the real world, which mm-hmm. is the interesting work that we're doing uh, here within Kaplan as well. Uh, joined Kaplan about, uh, what is it now, eight years ago almost, I think. Uh, when Andy Rosen, our CEO, came in and was looking for uh, help with putting in place a common approach to learning across all our different parts of Kaplan. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, all the good people were taken and we ended up hiring. So <laughs> that's just how it works. Right? You know? So it's all about timing, gentlemen. It's all about timing. And one of the uh, one of the concepts that you've been putting out there uh, is we talked a little bit of, about this earlier is uh, just trying to adopt good design thinking when creating learning experiences and that a lot of that requires uh, learning engineering. And, uh, you know, we, you've also brought the concept of learning architects to Kaplan. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. What's interesting about uh, engineering, because I am an electrical engineering person. I'm an engineering guy from way back. And a lot of people have a, a wrong impression of engineering. You know, they think of a guy in a, you know, a, a onesie with oil all over him in a wrench, right? Banging on stuff, right? And in fact, engineering and art have more in common these days than mm. most people think about because, uh, you know, designers of all kinds, including engineers, it's all about fitting what you're trying to get done within the constraints that you have, which could be physical, they could be financial, they could be time constraints, they could be constraints of the environment in which you're working. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in some ways, all of those things actually contribute to creativity. So, and the analogy between learning engineering and other kinds of engineering, the way I like to think about it is, imagine if you were going to build a new pharmaceutical factory. The last people you want helping you with that are chemists, the scientists. Mm -hmm. They have no interest in safety regs. They have no interest in, you know, uh, uh, what's going on with uh, other, you know, uh, environmental regs. They got no interest in the economics of it. I am exaggerating. Of course, scientists have some concerns about this, but in general, shout out to all our chemical engineer yeah. listeners. No, no, chemists uh, first. Chemists, chemists first. Sorry, yeah, chemists, chemists, chemists. Yes, yes. Right, right, shout right. out to all sorry, those. Yes. Jumping ahead. Um, because, uh, but, but for many of them, they didn't get into chemistry 
because they wanted to figure out the return on investment of a slightly thicker pipe wall in a giant pipe. That's not their thing. Mm -hmm. So what you really want are chemical engineers because this is exactly what they want to do. They've been trained to do, Mm -hmm. which is think about how do you scale up chemistry and get it to work in the real world. Now, it also ends up in some cases being uh, very interdisciplinary compared to maybe what a more narrow specialized research chemist would do. Mm-hmm. Because like I said, if, if you're going to do big pipes to do some work with you know, chemicals and production, what, what about those big pipes? How, how do you make them? How much mm-hmm. do they cost, et cetera? So you end up doing this kind of cross-disciplinary work. Mm-hmm. And then it is within constraints. But the final thing, it's sort of obvious to a chemical engineer, but I'll say it this way, you're using modern chemistry. Right. If your chemical engineer is just really happy about phlogiston theory, the latest thing from the 17th century, yeah. and it's just so exciting what's happening over there in Europe these days, right. you would kind of back away and say, I don't think you're going to do our pharmaceutical factory. <laughs> I, I think we'll find somebody else. Right. Yeah. So now let's take the analogy over to learning, Mm -hmm. right? There are a lot of good people working very hard on building learning environments at scale. Mm. And they they are experienced. They've been doing this for years. uh, And they work within constraints. But often, almost always in in our era, there's not a tight enough connection to modern learning science. So a lot of what they do, extremely well-meaning and skilled and often effective, but it's not because it's grounded in what is now known about how learning actually works out of cognitive science and elsewhere. So this is the idea of learning engineering, which is folks who are working at scale within constraints are good at that, but they're applying the results from learning science and good psychometrics, the the, the science of measuring learning to those problems, Mm -hmm. because that science gives you some constraints what you know will not work, even if you wish it did. And we can talk about examples of that. But it also gives you opportunities. You know, things you didn't think might work. Now, suddenly, like this, like this idea of memory palaces and things right. like this. Yep. The, 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 you might not have thought of that as you were, you know, generating your learning design. But right. it yeah. comes out of some work, uh, very good work in cognitive science showing that, yeah, that kind of visualization stuff really helps for just the memorization part of learning. Sure. So I, that's the idea of a learning engineer is training people to apply learning science at scale within their constraints. Makes makes a lot of sense. Uh, love the reference to phlogiston. Oh, oh. Uh, so you had me at phlogiston. Uh, Did you like the fact that chemistry and phlogiston, I, there's I, both a pH involved? I'm oh, just saying. Oh, hey. Well, you missed that. Oh, I did oh, miss oh, that. Oh, sorry, <laughs> sorry. It's Thank just you. a little you cool. You just rewound it sorry, a little just, bit. I just we love, we love the alliteration. Oh, it's uh, although that's like a... I don't even know what you would call it. No, that. it's kind of a metaphorical alliteration. I like it's kind it. Of an alliteration of ideas, nice. but not really. That's, that's you get it, you get in the next level. That's good. Yeah, it's good. So you have me at phlogiston, okay. but uh, but in terms of learning science, learning engineering, like what are some examples of uh, like phlogiston that <laughs> uh, that maybe we we should we should be careful about? Sure, and uh, some of this I think has already become clear that these are not the right things. But there's been some fashion, for example, that you know video is great for learning. Video is really great for learning. Everybody loves video. Mm-hmm. And, and the kind of false um, syllogism is, uh, you know, video is compelling. So if we can get kids to look at screens using video, mm-hmm. that means they're paying attention to the screen. Paying attention leads to learning. Ergo, more video equals more learning, mm-hmm. right? Well, Unfortunately, it's a false syllogism. Mm -hmm. That's not actually how learning works. That's not how the brain actually works. 
And so, uh, and, 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 you know, folks at Kaplan Test Prep have actually done some really cool randomized controlled trial experiments mm -hmm. comparing some very uh, well-designed video for some complex problem-solving work mm -hmm. against some other techniques that come out of learning science. Like worked examples. That's the one, uh, mm -hmm. worked examples. And we're able to demonstrate, uh, you know, in some ways, surprisingly, that a very simple technique that was static uh, actually worked better than the very compelling, you know, video that was actually produced. And, and so this is the kind of thing. And uh, another example is, uh, and, and some of the stuff, it, it's not that it's wrong, it's just complicated. So there's a sense that choice is great. Mm -hmm. Choice is great for learning. Thank heavens we have technology because now we can let learners choose, mm -hmm. right? That's got to be good. It, it's not so easy. So the research shows, for example, that all learners benefit by being given control over the pace of their learning. Mm -hmm. Speed up, slow down, reverse, go forward again. That actually helps everybody. So yes, there you, there's one. However, it turns out people who are novices in an area do not benefit when given control over the structure of their learning what they learn next or how they learn. Mm -hmm. they, they want, this is the other problem, they want to have control of that. Mm -hmm. They actually want it, but they are bad at it. Right. However, <laughs> if you get more experience, you get better in the domain, it turns out you do better at choosing the next thing to learn or how to learn. You mm -hmm. become better at it. And, and there's actually several of these examples that actually has a name in cognitive psychology. It's called the expertise reversal effect. Things that work well for novices don't work as well for experts. Mm. Things that work well for experts don't work as well for novices. So this mm. is one of those examples mm. where expertise makes a big difference. Yeah. And so, so it's complicated, right? right. Yeah, control over ch ch pace works for everybody, but control over structure only works for people who are more experienced. It's just messy. Yeah. Right? And so, and, and this is actually another piece about this learning engineering stuff that, and you'll hear this, you know, Brandon Jones, of course, as a business executive, is an, is an exception. Well, thank you. Whatever I'm going to be an Ooh. exception to, I'm, I'm ready for and it. He, yeah. And you had your whole name. <laughs> yes. Like, that was kind of like. If I knew your middle name, yeah. I would have used it yeah. to really put yeah. you on alert. I've got sir. a PH in my middle name, too. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah. yeah. Now, now we're drawing. Right, yeah. right, right. That's yeah. it. That's, yeah, so that's, that, that's actually starting to be something in the ether. That's like, mm. you know, struck fine structure of the right. universe kind right. of connection. Absolutely. Well, well, we wouldn't have known that there was a PH in the I mean, one thing we haven't done quite yet, like, Typically, we have like trivia questions on oh. the show, and like, and we like to have a ding sound effect. Ah, so uh, so Dan, like, we're gonna have to figure out what qualifies as like a a ding, but Absolutely. maybe if we use something with a ph in it, uh, <laughs> that could be good can, actually. Yeah. That so could let's be see, good. Let's see that how could, it goes. That could be good. Um, um, my middle name is Bellerophon, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Surprisingly, I, I gotta think about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, uh, uh, but you know, oftentimes, uh, folks who are business folks in the learning side. What they like to say is, simplify it down. Just, just give me the three points. Just, mm -hmm. you know, let's, let's keep it simple, right? And like in healthcare, you know, give me the three points about cancer. You know, I, I don't want a complicated answer about how to treat cancer. Just, just get me the short version of it, right? Learning is complicated. There, right. There's flavors in here, and we sort of have to get used to embracing some of that complexity mm -hmm. because the complexity really helps us. It helps us do things that work well in situations we might not have expected it, and it helps us avoid wasting people's time and effort in other situations. Um, and so, uh, you know, uh, uh, talking about the business side, uh, that example uh, we talked about earlier around using video versus using what's called a worked example for 
uh, uh, learning to do some complex problem solving, it, it's worth unpacking that a little bit further. That So a worked example means literally a student is looking at a worked out example of a complex reasoning task or problem. Uh, in, in the case of the experiment, they were actually the LSAT logical reasoning puzzles. And they're mm -hmm. very complicated things. And, and literally, you are looking at an expert's annotations on the problem of what they pay attention to and how they think about it, right? Mm -hmm. And you, you literally can just study those and compared with that long-form video. So a couple of things. The long-form video, it was an hour and a half of work with a workbook. Mm -hmm. And it turned out that students ended up spending something like a minute, a minute and a half per worked example in the other situation. So, mm -hmm. And only eight or nine of them seemed to give a significant positive benefit to the final solution score. So dramatically less time was spent on it. But now this is the CFO favorite part. <laughs> the, the, you know, the thing that was produced in, in that case was literally eight or nine PowerPoint slides. So you didn't even need the expense of creating a gorgeously produced video and workbook mm -hmm. that you know, learning is not proportional to the amount of money you spend. Right. The trick is not to spend a lot. The trick is to spend smart. Mm -hmm. And so that, again, is part of what this learning engineering is about, is within your constraints, and there's always constraints of time and resources, mm -hmm. optimizing what the learning science suggests to let you pack in as much goodness as you can within your constraints. And some of it is surprising and some of it is what you expected. But if you don't follow the evidence, mm -hmm. you're likely to make some mistakes. Yeah. One of the, uh, uh, the on, on following the evidence and, and um, using the data and not just sort of what's in pop sort of uh, learning science mythology uh, or learning mythology. I think one of the ones we've talked about before is um, learning styles. Like I, I don't know how many times I hear, you know, I'm a visual learner or my, my child is an auditory learner and mm -hmm. uh, the data seems to not have borne that out. I mean, can, can you talk a little bit about, about that? Sure. It's, and again, I, I, you know, I want to be careful about this because it's tempting to say learning styles don't work. But that's not exactly what the evidence says. What the evidence says is the way we've tried to implement learning styles so far doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So as a learning engineer, right. I say there's nothing there yet. I, I got nothing. Right. right. But I can't say the evidence says there will never be a way to describe learning styles. So let me step back and say what this all is about, mm -hmm. right? So, and many of the folks who listen to this will have heard these terms, mm -hmm. either from teachers or even just their own readings. It's things like, oh, my little Johnny is a visual learner, or, you know, I am a, kin a kinesthetic I learner. I love kinesthetic. I'm doing interpretive dance as Brewer <laughs> is speaking right now because I'm a kinesthetic learner, but, uh, but continue. So, yeah. so my favorite, of course, are those great creatures who are purely olfactory. Oh, yes. yeah. I mean, yeah. This is this is rock. Don't get. I, mean, I got some ideas. <laughs> no, no. And teaching, there's, there's teaching, memory. Oh, the olfactory bulb is I, where I, I mean, the know, hippocampus am, is right there, bro. I am only <laughs> one quarter kidding here. Yeah, I'm, I'm telling right you because if you think about calculus and and different equations and diffusion and how you can if use we're smell both for half that, kidding. That gets us to half baked. I think I don't, so. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Definitely. I don't know. Definitely. Yeah. Um, but but the learning styles idea is, uh, you know, that we can somehow classify minds into buckets. Yep. And then you design the learning to optimize mm -hmm. against the buckets. Right. And oh, look at that! It, we're going to have better learning, right? What you know? What could go wrong? Mm -hmm. Well, what's really interesting about this is. Even Howard Gardner, who is one of the early proponents of these multiple, ideas of multiple, multiple intelligences, intelligences yep. he actually says that that was a wrong use of his ideas. Mm. So 
the, the problem is, and, and Howard Gardner said it himself, he said, look, I'm trying to describe different kinds of intelligence, different ways of reasoning. Yes. I'm not saying that minds bucket into those things. Sure. So to me, the analogy is with colors. Mm. We have colors. We have red, yellow, blue, green, violet, whatever. By having those colors, we don't mean that things are either red or blue or green. You know, things can be a mix of colors. Sure. You know, it's like, yeah, duh. Mm -hmm. So the same thing here that learning experiences can be kinesthetic, can be, you know, tactile. Mm -hmm. Hopefully mm -hmm. they aren't olfactory, but you never know. And <laughs> You'll remember it, though, if they are. <laughs> oh, yes, you will. Especially in a second grade class. I tell you, that's very olfactory. Serious memory going on there. Anyway, um, and, 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 you know, the, 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 so you can describe learning experiences that way. And today for this topic, I might learn it more effectively be, through a visual way. Yep. But tomorrow for a different topic, it's the kinesthetic thing that finally gets through to me, right? right so right. It, what happens is it would be convenient if you could bucket minds right. into these little categories, but learning is really very inconvenient. Mm. And so, uh, uh, and people have done these experiments where you take, uh, you know, the latest uh, uh, well-designed learning styles uh, diagnostic, and then you apply it to a bunch of students and then however they come out, you then give them well-designed learning approaches that are in that style. Mm -hmm. And you compare that to well-designed single instruction. Now, notice it's got to be well-designed single instruction because, you know, anything is better than a kick in the head, right? So, <laughs> you know, it's got to be, you got to be fair and do a well-designed single instruction. And over the last 30 years, this has kind of been done in a meta-analytic way every decade or so where an excited person in learning style says, I'm going to go find the evidence to show that now we've got it. We've had it for a long time. Mm. And they look and they look at all these randomized control trial studies that have tried to do it. And they come back saying ruefully, you know, the evidence just doesn't support it. We're getting no significant effect from it. Now, you know, it's tempting to say, therefore it doesn't work, mm -hmm. but it could be the primitive ways we have of bucketing minds now mm -hmm. are not yielding anything useful. That doesn't mean that, you know, as neuroscientists keep going and we have much clearer ways of understanding how different minds literally work, mm -hmm. maybe there is some deeper biological classification scheme right. that could emerge, which would be really cool if it did, For sure. to say, ooh, you know, but it's not likely to be as simple as visual. It's likely to be, you know, uh, mind type 632B, right. you know, more like a cancer typology, mm -hmm. right? And probably the interventions are going to be about as complicated, right? There's something very specific that ties into that specific mind type. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm just making that all up. Sure. Right? But for now, as an engineer, as a learning engineer, I kind of got nothing to build on. Right. And what I'd say is there's a lot of other research that shows significant uh, results by implementing learning in a certain way in laboratories. Mm -hmm. So I'd rather start from something that can give uh, a, half an, a half a standard deviation of effect or even a full standard deviation of effect in a laboratory. Right. I'd rather start from that, try to implement that in the wild, test that to see how it works, right. than something that at the, at the moment has no evidence that it's been able to be implemented in a useful way. Right. We live at, we, the, the danger here is in 2017, we live in a post-truth world. And so, you know, trying to, to tie evidence to action, I think that there's a tenuous relationship there. Like it is, it is convenient to the point of, you know, people wanting simple answers. It is convenient to have a framework that says, you know, we help children who have, who are audio, audio learners, auditory learners and visual learners. And, 
and um, you know, getting really a, another layer under the hood and saying we, we don't actually know. So we're we are trying to construct something that is complex and has a complex answer to that is not simple and simple simple plays. I think um, I think a related point is uh, for the learning engineer, they need we need to think multimodal, and we need to think about even your video example. I thought you know video versus the worked example. There still was visual. Absolutely. data in the work they're both visual inputs that the learner needs to consume and then there's also at least in the case of uh um, you know audio video there's also audio yep. and uh and that's been something that we've been really interested in uh just with some of the even the audio capabilities that we're using right now like when is audio it's gonna get real meta yeah but when is audio most effective and when is like the the the, the richest data being uh delivered through which mode and i know i know you've you've done a lot of research into that well and there's you know two points to be made about that you know one is you have to be careful because this is the way in which design and engineering are always different than science which is there are many questions that would be valuable for engineering purposes that no one has answered in a scientific way yet right so the, the exact mix of audio and visuals in a particular domain and so forth however there are intriguing signposts. So there's a, a very well-known uh, cognitive scientist uh, uh, out in uh, UC uh, uh, Santa Barbara, Richard Mayer, mm -hmm. who's done a lot of research on, with colleagues all around the globe on um, how do media and text uh, and sequencing uh, and visuals work together? When do they compete and create problems? And yep. when do they actually help? Mm -hmm. And there's a great book, E-Learning and the Science of Instruction. Uh, it's in its fourth edition. Uh, Rich Mayer and Ruth Clark together keep updating this yep. great handbook for instructional design. Mm -hmm. And there really are some guidelines about what does the evidence, not just guesswork, but what does the evidence show in terms of how you put these things together? And it's interesting because, for example, and again, it's not simple, right? Mm -hmm. We'd like to say audio and visual, they're better. I was like, well, sort of. If you have distracting audio or visuals together with other pieces, you have to get rid of them mm -hmm. because they distract. They don't actually help. And again, that syllogism of, hey, rock and roll music equals more listening, equals more attention, equals more learning. Right. Again, it's a false syllogism because you're paying attention to the rock and roll music, mm -hmm. right? So you got to get rid of the distractions. On the other hand, adding audio that is about the same thing that you are looking at actually improves learning right but it, it, it's got to be about the same thing it's got to mm -hmm. be about the same outcome mm -hmm. and then finally like i said it's complicated there's a classic thing that happens where people in the audio will have a little script and they will put it on the slide yes. on the visual thinking that hey it's twice yes gotta be better right i'm doing it twice right i may have encountered this in a in a meeting or two <laughs> maybe yeah possibly it turns out the research shows you actually lower learning when you do that because instead of the eye and mind benefiting from two different approaches to the same learning outcome, your eye can't help but read the text. Mm -hmm. So it looks like you end up not getting the benefit mm -hmm. of the actual visual underneath it or something like that. Sure, sure. It just, so for people, and again, this is for people who are normal English language learners, who are normal hearing, you know, have normal hearing, sure. that you actually want to turn off those visual, that visual text right. to get improved learning. Right. But you do want to have it available because you've got a lot of other people who either English is not their first language or who are hearing impaired, in which case the text actually is helpful. So mm -hmm. 
it's messy this stuff right? yeah i wonder if i'm just as, as listening to to talk i'm just makes me reflect i wonder if what the goal of trying to c- convince the world about the value of learning engineering if, if we just start by convincing people that it's complicated mm-hmm. like when uh, i think yeah. about you know chemical just, engineering yeah no one says, you know, oh, well, I'm going to design the pipes in, you know, this new pharma lab I'm building because they say, well, that's complicated. <laughs> I should leave that to an expert. Right. And, uh, and yet, so we all have, you know, we all were learners or basically everybody. I, I would go out so far yeah. as to say everyone listening to this podcast right now had some sort of K-12 experience. Sure. Right. We've all done some version of teaching, whether it's to friends or children yeah. or, and so we all have these constructs that we think we know work. And so maybe the first step is just really, really convincing us. We don't know what we think we know. It right. is complicated. Right. It's, it, we, we would like it to be otherwise, but it's not otherwise. It in fact is complex and yep. takes, it takes expertise. Yeah. And, and the other point, which, uh, you know, I'd want to get to quickly under like the learning engineering umbrella is trying to, uh, solve like motivational and mm. sort of like like human socio-emotional uh, problems that the learner has. Because I think typically we tend to wear our cognitive hats when we're thinking about engineering, but there actually are a lot of challenges around motivating learners who are living in an age when there's a lot of fast food options that are competing with what might be more nutritious. Yep. Well, I, and actually I say a little bit about that. I, I actually, I'll unpack what you just said there for a second, which is you know, you, you mentioned cognitive. Uh, uh, our talk has been mostly about cognition. So it, it, one way to think about learning and, and what's needed to make learning work is you have to get the cognitive architecture right and you have to get the motivation architecture right. So the cognitive architecture refers to things like what's the sequence of topics that you're doing? Um, what is the kind of practice and feedback you're doing? And does it match the nature of the learning outcome. There's a bunch of research about how you match those things together. You know, certain kinds of activities are better for certain kinds of learning outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, it also ties into, um, have you diagnosed what is in a student's long-term memory that's likely to be important for what you're about to embark on? Because mm-hmm. if you're assuming a student's got something in long-term memory, meaning it's easy for them, it's quick, they don't even notice that they're right. doing it, and they don't have it there, then when you are trying to learn something new, it's going to get all tangled up in that missing piece, mm-hmm. right? So again, for cognitive architecture, if you were you know, working on your best day, mm-hmm. you would try to figure out, do we have everything we need in long-term memory? If we don't, let's back up and make sure we get some, get some down payments going there so that the person is at least familiar with that. You're, so that, pre- you're prepared for a tabula rasa yeah. situation, yeah. but it's likely they got a little bit of something stuff. going on. Yeah, and you want to draw on that, yeah, right? Yeah. So, so that's, that's on the cognitive architecture side, right? So the motivation architecture side is different, um, but is just as important. So motivation for this purpose is, is really defined as uh, a student or anybody actually starting, persisting, and putting in mental effort, right? And, and you know, everything I'm about to say applies to, you know, our whole lives. It's not just about students or whatever. It's about teachers. It's about you know, families. It's about anything. Mm-hmm. Politicians, but let's not go there. Um, so starting, persisting, and putting in mental effort is kind of that definition. You'll notice that definition does not include the word liking, right? It's a right. bit like working out on the weights that mm-hmm. you don't have to like the weights. As long as you start, persist, and put in physical effort in that case, you will change your cells, your muscle cells, as long as it's well-designed weight program, right? And liking is kind of irrelevant to whether you will get stronger, right? right. Same thing with neurons and thinking, that if you run them on well-designed activities, you will change them. 
So we had a very good cognitive psychologist, Richard Clark from USC a few years ago, do a scan of all kinds of motivation research, behavioral economics, social psychology, motivational psychology, uh, cognitive psychology, a bunch of different things. And, and then he did, a, he, he did a great piece of work, and we're actually trying to write this up now to get it out, around how can you collapse all of those different disciplines and language? Is there a framework that those seem to suggest? And he came up with a four-part framework for what goes wrong with people starting, persisting, and putting in mental effort. Mm. Um, so the first thing that goes wrong is people don't value what they're going to do. You know, I'm a dancer in an algebra class. What am I doing here? I'm right. thinking about Swan Lake, not about quadratic equations. Mm. I mean, help. Um, and to treat that, if you will, you, you got to kind of bustle over and try to figure out how do I connect this to something of interest to an artsy person? Yeah. Is it about an arts foundation? Is it mm. about leaps and how high you can go and yeah. what's going on with that? Something like that, right? The second thing that goes wrong uh, with motivation is you think you can't do it. So another dancer, same algebra class, mm-hmm. I can't do math. Well, if you bustle over there and tell them how important it is for their future and yada, yada, yeah, you're just making it miserable. It's like, I know it's so important. <laughs> I can't do it. Yeah, my life is over. I get this, right? right? Right. And the correct treatment, if you will, is to say, yes, you can do math. Let's back it up. You right. know, let's find out what's missing here. Everyone can do math. I once was talking to a group of teachers and I explained to them how there's, you know, they should say to their students that, look, there's research that cockroaches can do math and therefore you can do math. <laughs> They did not invite me back. <laughs> really? It actually turns out they decided not to have me speak to the Ever children. Ever since Kafka, the cockroach, yeah, yeah. Gregor, Gregor Samson, they, they really yeah. have not done well. <laughs> so, uh, you know, but, you, you know, you got to back it up and, and that's the way to get at it. Yeah. And the third thing that goes wrong is uh, it's a little bit like the second one. What you do is you blame something in your environment. You say, I can't do this because. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, it could be my teacher hates me or it could be I can't understand this textbook. Right. Or I don't have a place to work. Or I, this is a popular one. I don't have time. Sure. I don't have time, right? And so I don't start. I don't persist. I don't put in mental effort, right? Mm-hmm. So in that case, you got a problem solve around whichever ones of those are being claimed. Sure. Schedule problem. Let's look at your schedule. Let's right. look at the time. Where, where can we clear out time? Oh, no space. Well, let's, where, do you, where are you? Where do you walk around? Where do you work? What can we do about the space problem? And part of it is to model that you do not have to give up. Right. Right. You can dig into this. You do have agency over this thing that you think is in your way. Sure. Sure. The last thing that gets in the way, which is the hardest of all, is is negative emotional states. Mm -hmm. If you are angry, frustrated, scared, depressed, you're not going to start persist putting mental effort. Right. And so, you know, solving those is just as hard as it sounds. Unless services. I mean, uh, we always talk about uh, sports analogies. So like if your coach can motivate you to harness that anger, like the, the whole chip on the shoulder, you know, like it almost becomes uh, like you're helping the the whole learner and you're trying to understand her, like her psychological state. Well, and, and the trick is in, in that case, can you convert something into agency? Mm-hmm. You can do something about this. And, you know, sometimes in learning the thing that's in your way, that's obsessing the student or that's creating the negative vibes it's, it's not a thing that focusing on the learning will help with. Right. Because it's, you know, my mom's car just broke down and she doesn't know how to get it repaired. She doesn't have the money for that. She's going to lose her job tomorrow sure. if she can't figure it out. Yep. You know, I, I am scared. You know, I'm, I am really bummed out about this. So it's not clear that focusing on the learning today is going to solve that. Yep. 
But in other cases, if you can get it to be a thing that sure. this will solve, right. that's a great thing. But the problem solving around those negative emotional states is, is as hard as, and complicated. It reminds me yeah. of, uh, of Maslow. You know, yes. like, like if you can address the base level needs, then learning can be layered on top of that. But if, if you're having trouble feeling safe yeah. or getting a, getting a good nutritious meal or a good night's sleep, like that's that's your base level problem as a learning engineer, as a teacher, as a human, you got to help that person. And, and again, just to be clear, if it's in the way of your learning. So this is one of the reasons why you could argue, and it, may, it probably wasn't put in place for this reason, you know, things like uh, free and reduced meals in mm -hmm. schools and so forth. Mm -hmm. it, it wasn't a bunch of cognitive psychologists sitting around and saying, hey, let's feed these kids. It was for other, you know, good reasons. And yet it does actually have a cognitive psychology impact, which mm -hmm. is at least while going to school, you are not hungry. Right. And, and you know, and you're, you're also not worrying about your parents worrying about you being hungry, right? Because right. you can have this kind of echo effect of, I'm really sorry I'm making my parents upset because I'm really hungry. Right. I was like, no, I'm not. And so now I can, I, you know, I'm, I'm freed up from that kind of negative vibe or that, you know, obsessing thing. Mm -hmm. And that can help me then focus during the school day. I mean, I may still have trouble with issues all around outside, but during the time that I'm trying to learn, that's the idea is to try to help unlock uh, your attention mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and allow you to then start persistent coordinated effort. So these notions of motivation and cognition working together. Yes. And I would argue most places have spent a lot more time thinking about the cognitive architecture of things. Mm -hmm. Whereas sometimes we fall into the mistake, even among adults looking at each other of saying, you know, that bro, he's just lazy. You know, he's just, he just, I, he just doesn't want to do stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's mm -hmm. kind of like a dismissive, there's nothing to be done. It's just the way Broar is. Right. And you guys know me. You wish I did more. You know, I <laughs> yeah. get it. I get it. Send me the memo. I if he'd only apply himself. If only, if only <laughs> apply myself. And so what this helps, this kind of model helps. Imagine if in a healthcare situation, he said, you know, Brandon, he's, he's sick. Right. He's just sick. Yeah. And we stopped. Right. <laughs> it was like, he's sick. Is that, like, is that like bad is good? Like, yeah. like he's sick. Oh, you mean, oh, you mean, actually, no, no, you sorry. Mean like literally. I meant literally. Sorry. Got it. I gotta, okay. I, yes. Yeah. Good point. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I meant literally, you know, wow. as if that's both the problem and a statement that says there's nothing to be done. Yes. Yeah. Just, and what, what I was thinking too, I, I, the same sort of, uh, I was analogizing the same way is, um, uh, oversimplification probably leads to a lot of misdiagnosis and then, um, or not even, maybe it's or not a, even a diagnosis, right? It's not even a, the, the lack of attempting to diagnose properly leads to misapplication of solutions. Absolutely. Right. So to the four point framework that you're just talking about, if someone's issue is that they don't value the learning and you're trying to solve for, uh, the right, it. the right textbook, yeah. you right? can do it, you can do it, you can do it. Yeah. Why? Yeah. 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 So I, I think that's, um, it's, it's a, the fallacy here is that it, that things are simple, that we are simple, that our motivations are simple. When in fact, I mean, it's, you know, we, sh we, we, we shouldn't be hard to convince that we are complex creatures with, yeah. you know, complex motivational sets, uh, but really properly diagnosing. I think that's, that's obviously got to be the, a key in applying the right kind of solution. At least the right, the right and the right I point. think, you know, just like in medicine, you know, the beginnings of application of science led to fairly simple diagnostic frameworks that still were effective. And then the more we understood about the biology, the underlying science behind disease and so forth, the more new ways of diagnosing and treating disease. I mean, I think about 
uh, you know, things like uh, uh, cancers. Uh, a couple of years ago, there was this breakthrough where people discovered that the molecular biology of certain breast cancers was closer to ovarian cancer than it was to other breast cancers. Mm -hmm. So immediately, a, a bunch of people said, well, wait a minute, then we should try some successful ovarian cancer treatments against those specific breast cancers. Now, before that research result, that would have been malpractice because mm -hmm. it's a breast cancer bonehead. <laughs> right. What are you doing giving them the chemical treatments for an ovarian cancer, you know? But once you had the science at a more detailed level, mm. you now had a pretty strong reason to go after there and say, wait a minute, we, we actually have a mechanism here that we should now exploit. Mm -hmm. I also think about, you know, work on neuroscience, for example, I don't think has yet uh, yielded something practical for learning at scale. So mm -hmm. like learning algebra, I don't think is got a new wrinkle to it driven from neuroscience. There's a lot of new things you can do driven from cognitive science, which is where you have people in labs trying to learn in different ways, trying to learn algebra in different ways. And so the detailed science is at the person, big person level. Um, but the neuroscience at the cellular level is beginning to come upwards from just cells to now patterns of cell firing. Sure. And now you can start to see through functional magnetic resonance imaging expertise. You can start to see the signature of expertise. You can almost tell if a person is an expert based on how their brain fires, which is kind of extraordinary when you think about it. Mm -hmm. And that's great. It doesn't yet give us any new ways of teaching algebra or right. new ways of getting there. But I am betting that as that low-level science continues to advance, mm -hmm. we may well get into some new information to help us, either on the motivation level or on the cognitive level, that isn't suggested by cognitive science in the same way that molecular biology eventually suggested treatments that were not suggested by regular cell biology, you know, and, and the, the higher level kind of approach that was taken before. So right. I don't think we're quite there yet, um, but, but it's coming. It's definitely coming. And yeah. that, that's why people who are learning engineers have got to pay attention to the science because the science is changing. You, right. know? you can't just block it off. You actually have to figure out a way to keep listening and keep aware because you may end up with some new uh, techniques uh, that emerge from somewhere that you should then be applying in your own environment. Yeah, I, I like uh, I like analogizing from the medical from medical practice uh, to uh, to learning because I also am a simple in in my complexity I'm also a simple man. Um, I, I think the concept of mal of malpractice you know uh, applied to learning there, there isn't it, it's it's happening there isn't a word or there isn't like a construct for right. it concept for it like there is in in medicine like you know malpractice and and it's something that you can talk about and point to and say this was wrong right that same amount of wrong is happening in, in designing learn, learning um, uh, modes and f uh, frameworks for- And, and tech and other things. Right? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and yet there, because we are limited in our language, I think we're limited in, you know, then therefore being able to have a conversation about it. So I, I think that's, I think there's something there. I, well, think, I think it's a great point. And then even uh, extending that into where there's evidence, you know, so like I, exactly. I know that's a big point uh, that you make uh, regularly, uh, Broer, which maybe you could expand on a little bit, but like, uh, frequently the design intent might even be there. It's just there's a lack of evidence. And then even when the intervention's released, it, the outcomes aren't necessarily measured. So exactly. we don't necessarily know whether it's working or not. And, um, you know, in some ways we have a unique advantage in that, like, we have a broer uh, who's telling us to. That's an we, have, we have the broer. We have the, the broer. Excuse me. Don't be fooled by imitations. That's right. There is only one. Often imitated, never duplicated. That's right. 
Yeah, yeah. My family is really happy about that. Actually, really, <laughs> only one. Thank you. Well, although the duplication, like whatever we do in our R and D labs, yeah, exactly. Right. Right. Is, is true. Entirely yeah. different. Cloning is in the budget of yes. 2018. Yes. No question, yes. yes. <laughs> but um, but yeah. So like just the evidence based orientation, uh, and then the other. I, I think we probably want to wrap this show up relatively quickly. Uh, the other concept around learning engineering, I think you've touched on it already, is the idea of uh, technology-driven versus technology-enabled. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, you know, when people are trying to think through what's the future of learning environments and how are they going to work, I, I think it's really a mistake to think that somehow the future is totally automated learning environments. That, uh, you know, there are some learning outcomes that may very naturally be completely uh, automated through ed tech. Uh, but th those are going to be some you know, basic things, early level things that are skills and fluencies that you can do. And in there's increasing use of AI that can help with that. But once you get out beyond the basics and now you're looking at problem solving, you're looking at prioritization, you're looking at communication, which is what experts actually do with lots mm. of different folks, the coaching and feedback for that really has to be done by professionals, by mm -hmm. people who are ideally both good at the domain, but also good at the teaching side of it too. So I actually think, you know, the way this will progress is not MOOCs, massive open online courses that were so excited, mm -hmm. exciting three years ago, this will solve all our education problems, mm -hmm. because it's not enough. I actually think it's going to be this side-by-side -side work between skilled uh, professionals mm -hmm. with uh, technology and that's the technology enabled part of it yes um, and and so to me that's the important thing is to think about the learning environment as a whole mm -hmm. not as discrete pieces so that both of them you know do what's what's best for them mm -hmm. uh, for the learner yep sounds great uh, Dan any uh, parting thoughts uh, well uh, of course we've been talking to Brewer Saxberg chief learning officer from Kaplan Inc Brewer where can people find out more about your work and I know you have a blog out there can you share uh, how people can find out uh, how to find out more about you well, uh, one of the best ways is probably just to Google Broer's blog, uh, all one word. Um, I we know told you it was the Broer, right? right? We talked about right. a Broer versus no the Broer. There's no apostrophe, right? <laughs> no apostrophe. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there are, as usual on Google, 10,000 of those. Mm. But if you take the first one, you should be fine. Nice. Uh, so uh, that's probably the easiest way that's to do good. it. That's dropping rank. Right. Like, look at that. That's, also, that's a leverage play, too. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I'm already top of the SEO, and, so just keep hitting the yeah, one at the just, top. Just and keep also, clicking. It, it does turn out my, my name is a little weird, so if you even Google me, you can find uh, a variety of videos and things that I've done, including a TEDx thing I did in San Francisco a long time back that talks about learning science and so forth. So there's there's things out there uh, that uh, that can be helpful. Brewersblog.typepad.com if you want the direct URL here on the uh, podcast. And as Bore said, I've, I've caught a couple of his YouTube videos. They're all uh, good presentations across learning engineering and more. So if you're interested, they're, they're phenomenal. They're uh, they're 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 epiphenomenal. They're phonetically correct. <laughs> they're they're fat with a ph. They're all these things. It's strong enough for a man, but balanced for a woman. I think is where we're going. I'm not sure I like where that's going, <laughs> literally and figuratively. Actually, figuratively actually, but that's all fine. Thanks very much for uh, for taking. And, and and for those of you who enjoyed this show, uh, we're gonna we're gonna try to get one more out of Broar next, talking about the future of work. I look forward to it. Awesome. Plenty to get to here on Trending in Education. Find us at Trending in Ed on Twitter, Trending in Ed on Facebook, and of course, TrendingInEd.com. We'll be back more next week right here on Trending in Education.